G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. We are back and we are still in search of the Garden of Eden. And we're any closer to finding it? Oh, time to tell. (laughs) Last time we talked about this, we looked at a whole bunch of different places that people thought could be the original location for the Garden of Eden. And some people believe that Eden may well still exist. We are back on the trail this week after a couple of fun excursions. Last week, of course, I had a chat with the inimitable Dr. Judd Burton. That was awesome. And the week before that, we talked about trees as members of the Divine Council. Which reminds me of a joke. Hey, Chris, what happens if you chop down a talking tree? I'm not ready for this, but uh, I'll tell you one dad joke. Okay, what happens if you chop down a talking tree? It'll die a log. Okay, that was somewhat amusing, maybe 30%. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, all right. Uh, Anyway, I I think most people would agree that even if if Eden does exist, it's not going to be the same as it was back in Genesis. Nevertheless, that doesn't seem to have dampened anyone's enthusiasm with regards to being able to pinpoint that location. Yeah, and that reminds me of another place that uh, everybody wants to be able to claim that they know where it is, but no one really is sure, and that's Mount Sinai. Yeah, that's right. The biblical Mount Sinai is another place that people really have trouble locating. We have all this geographical information, and yet you just can't pinpoint one place that satisfies all of the requirements that the biblical text demands. Even when the authors of Scripture refer to Sinai, they seem to disagree about where it is relative to other places. It reminds me of that story that Bilbo Baggins tells the little kids in the Fellowship of the Ring. So there I was, at the mercy of three monstrous trolls, and they were all arguing amongst themselves about how they were going to cook us, whether it be turned on a spit or whether they should sit on us one by one and squash us into jelly. They spent so much time arguing the withertoos and the wife wars that the sun's first light cracked open over the top of the trees. Poof! And turned them all into stone. Just like that, we are right back into talking about giants. There you go. They're like the yellow pages. The more you look, the more you find. Now, I could spend a lot of time going into the location of Sinai and discussing arguments for different places, but I'm not going to because our focus here is on the text of Genesis 2 and the location of Eden. So I will put that aside before I turn to stone myself. However, for those who are interested, Dr. Michael Heiser does a wonderful coverage of this in his Naked Bible podcast over a number of episodes in his series on Exodus, and you'll get a very good sense of what textual scholars have struggled with for thousands of years with regard to the difficulties of locating Sinai by the text. And people have gone just about insane trying to find Sinai, so we'll try to spare you from the brink of insanity. Turned into my worst phobia, a crazy man's utopia. If you're lost, no one can show ya, but it sure was glad to know ya. Only poor boys take a chance. On the garden, song and dance. You're enjoying that far too much. Uh, you're singing uh, Guns N' Roses again? Yeah, well, sorry. Technically, it was Alice Cooper, but you're kind of right anyway. We're going to have to maintain our focus on Eden in order to be able to keep this discussion manageable, and we've already run into our second episode now trying to ascertain the location of Eden. So you'll understand why I have to keep this brief, but I'm going to suggest that both Eden and Sinai have a great deal in common. I'm not saying that they're the same place or that we're somehow going to land on a solution for both locations. I'm just saying that the reason people have had trouble locating both of these geographical locations is the same reason. So what do Sinai and Eden have in common then? Well, actually quite a lot. Sinai and Eden are both considered to be cosmic mountains where heaven and earth meet. Granted that the language of Genesis 2 does not explicitly use mountain terminology, but The fact that water flows out from Eden suggests its elevation. And Sinai and Eden are both considered to be located in the east, and yet nobody knows exactly where. Sinai and Eden are both places from which a source of abundant water flowed out. In Genesis, we're told of the river that flows through the garden, and in Exodus, we're told of the water that flowed from the rock at Horeb. Sinai and Eden are both places where a chosen individual, representative of a wider population, could meet with God. In Eden, it was the man, and at Sinai, it was Moses. Sinai and Eden are both places where God convened a council. Sinai had the 70 elders of Israel. 
Eden had the trees in the garden, which we talked about last time, which on Moses and Ezekiel's interpretation of Genesis 10 and Deuteronomy 32 would give us 70 Elohim. Now, Sinai and Eden are both locations that were spoken of as having three separate parts representing three distinct zones within a temple complex, the outer court, the sanctuary, and the most holy place. On Sinai, these are representative of zones of different elevation on the mountain. So you have the plain of the, the land, you have the foot of the mountain, you have the peak. Whereas in the case of Eden, it's about moving inward toward the most holy place from the outside to the centre, from outside the garden to within the garden to the centre of the garden, which had those two particular trees. And Sinai and Eden are both places where God issued law. On Sinai, the ten words, and on Eden... The single command, thou shalt not eat of it. Sinai and Eden are both places where God offered abundant life. Come with me if you want to live. Uh, Sinai and Eden are both places where people angered God by choosing less than what God had to offer. And Sinai and Eden are perpetually remembered as significant locations, but never really visited as sacred sites in Scripture. In fact, both of them are barely mentioned at all after the initial record of the events that transpired there. Nobody goes back to Eden. Nobody goes back to Sinai. Both places seem to have served their function at the time, and then they're remembered only as archetypes of a larger picture, anticipating the first tabernacle and then the temple. Now, we could keep on going, rattling off these parallels, but that's 10 so far, and I think you get the point. In fact, there are probably so many parallels that you could crack the code on one of these and figure it out where it is, and you'd probably be able to apply the same logic to find the other one. For the moment now, I want to leave this discussion on hold just so that we can revisit what we looked at in part one and just do a quick overview of the geographical locations that we considered as possible locations of Eden. So our first candidate was Egypt, which had the notable distinction of being a garden paradise through which flowed a river that divided into four heads, just like it says in Genesis 2. Egypt had connections to the Ethiopian land of Cush and the abundant mineral wealth of the area, but where Egypt fell down was that we could not establish a secure connection to the rivers that we know of that are named in the text, namely the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which are not connected to the Nile system at all. Then we looked at Babylon, which of course is located between those two rivers that I just mentioned, so that rules out the land from which those rivers flow as the text requires. We can't find the other two rivers and we don't have any of those mineral deposits that are mentioned in the regions where the rivers are supposed to flow. It does have proximity to the land of the Kassites, also known as Kush, and it can do that without interaction with the African continent. After that, we went to Assyria, which had a lot going for it because we could identify potential rivers that fit the bill flowing southward to the Kassite Kush. We had other scriptures using the name Eden to locate an area in the vicinity. By the way, while I was searching the maps looking at places in Assyria, I found out there's a place called Batman. Like, how cool is that? Where do you live? Ah, oh, I live in Batman. That's awesome. We had the mountainous topography and it was all looking really good, except that we don't have evidence of the mineral deposits required in the lands where those rivers flow. And the one river to rule them all remains a hypothetical. Speaking of Batman, we're approaching the time of year when he cops a lot of heat. And we would just like to take this opportunity to remind our listeners that contrary to the popular children's rhyme, Batman does not smell. Spicy, spicy content, man. Now that hypothetical Master River was also a problem when we considered Jerusalem because the Jordan Rift Valley might potentially be a good candidate for connecting river systems down through the Dead Sea and the Persian Gulf. But there is some question over whether that system functioned at all and if it indeed connected all the way down into Africa to meet up with Ethiopian Kush. What Jerusalem did have going for it, though, was a strong connection with a sense of cosmic geography, since it was considered by Israelites to be the navel of the earth. We had concepts like the Far East, the Far North, the edge of the inhabited world, and all those kind of things that play into the cosmic mountain motif. However, we also found good reasons to view the mountains of Uratu in a similar light. Uratu doesn't have the problem of locating suitable rivers, but while it does have the rivers, what it lacks, once again, is the mineral wealth of the region associated with the rivers. And our final candidate that we looked at in that previous episode was the Persian Gulf itself, and the idea that in the distant past it would have been a connecting point for rivers that exist now, and ones that have since become extinct, 
converging on a lush green plain that once sat above the sea level of its day and would have provided abundant mineral wealth. But the major problem that we had with that view was the realisation that all of the rivers would have been flowing backwards, according to the wording of the biblical text, and attempts to account for that language have utterly failed. So we're back in the position where we started. Just like Sinai, we don't have a single candidate that can account for all of the biblical data. But we knew that going into this, and that, of course, is going to prompt many readers to throw their hands up in the air and say, well, this is an utterly futile exercise, because it seems obvious that either the information we're given is contradictory or it has no value as literal text at all, and this whole thing must be purely symbolic. So I guess we should ask the question, is it purely symbolic? Is the Garden of Eden just a literary device that is designed to communicate truth that the biblical author wants to affirm without any connection to historicity and physical geography at all? Should we cancel their plane tickets and return our shovels for a refund and just be content to analyse the text for its meaning alone? Well, I think if we take that route, we need to question why we have certain statements in the text. But if we isolate them and look for some kind of esoteric value, we're really going to struggle. Why should anyone care about the quality of gold and bdellium and onyx stone in Havilah? Who cares what direction you have to be travelling if it doesn't matter which way you go because you can't get there? This is the ancient world. Recording details in written form is not easy or cheap, and certainly anyone recording details by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit isn't going to be wasting our time with seemingly insignificant statements about the quality of minerals and the location of imaginary places. The only solution to our problem is going to be to resort to the text. Let's hear it again from Genesis 2, starting at verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bdellium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Okay, now we're going to try and read through it in the eyes of an ancient Israelite. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. All right, so let's break this down. And of course, we start with the relational aspect of God here when we speak of him as Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. This is a personal act between God and the man that we're about to read about. God plants a garden, and this garden is not just growing in the soil. The garden is established. So this is a place that God has set firm. It has definite boundaries. Establishing something takes time. You don't just throw some seeds on the ground and walk off hoping for the best. God has put time and effort and care into this place. That's how we can talk about it as being established. And it's a place of delight. It's a place of abundance and bounty and beauty. Let's not forget where we are. This is the ancient Near East. Look around. This isn't an orchard of orange trees and patches of strawberries or fields of wheat and rows of cucumbers. It's an, it's an oasis. Date palms, pomegranates, figs and grapes growing wild. It's beautiful. It's fragrant. It's delicious. And it's well established, which means that it didn't just spring up overnight. Remember, we're not dealing with creation week here as though it was a literal seven days since there was nothing but the first atoms spinning in space. This garden has been here a long time, and that's exactly what the text means when it says, in the east. So what do you mean when you say, in the east? What has that got to do with anything with, in regards to time? Well, put yourself in the shoes of an ancient person. They don't have a clock. They don't have a calendar. They don't have a phone in their pocket. If you want to know what the time is, you look at the sun. When the sun is high in the sky, you know it's the middle of the day. When the sun's in the west, you know it's getting late. And when the sun is in the east, it's early. So this mention of the east is actually not supposed to be a geographical marker. It is, in fact, a chronological marker, and it's not intended to be precise or anything. It's just there to tell you that back in the early time is when this thing happened. Remember Genesis 1, verses 14 to 18. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky, to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and for years. 
They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, and it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. All right, so if we're taking this text seriously, we understand that ancient people actually did use the position of heavenly bodies to determine the time. So it's not unrealistic to expect that people would speak in that manner and actually refer to the position of the sun as a means of telling the time. You don't have to mention the sun to do it. If I say I was watching TV earlier, I don't have to say earlier in the day. That's implied. You don't have to say the most obvious part of the expression. It's there by implication. God planted that garden back when it was early. So in the time before now, that's what it means to say. In the East can be used as an expression that simply means that it happened before. It was earlier. It was some time ago doesn't matter exactly when it happened before and once we grasp that concept of a common ordinary figure of speech used by everyone in the ancient world it takes that ridiculous geographical conundrum out of the question east of what right if the intent was to convey any kind of geographical location you'd have to say that it was east of somewhere some particular point but that's not the point we're talking about a time in the past that's when the garden was planted that's why the garden is now established and that's why this garden is ready for the man to be placed in it. And this placement of the man, it's not like God pinched his fingers and Adam was just lifted up by his tiny pointy head and dropped on the spot in the middle of the garden. The Hebrew is really trying to stress here that God caused the man to rest in the garden, this place of delight. And we've spoken about rest before. For those who came in late, that was toward the end of season one where we talked about rest as dominion having control over the land and being prepared to deal with whatever may arise. A position of confidence and authority, but also one of active responsibility. And we spoke before about how this particular man was chosen out of obscurity from among the common people or the dust of the ground, and how in that sense he is formed. In other words, he's selected and prepared for this purpose. So we could say that the Lord God established a garden of delight long ago, and there he caused to rest in authority the man that he had appointed. It's my uh, paraphrase there, if you like. So he's in charge of this place under the authority of God, but we still don't know what this place is. We've already seen that the bringing forth of trees in the garden is representative of the presence of these other entities existing in the presence of God that exist to enact his will, not only in heavenly places, but with a connection to the earth. Their responsibility is to provide for the earthly creatures everything that they need, not just for the sustenance of life, but for its enjoyment and development as well. But we still don't know where we are. Now, the text tells us that a river went out from Eden to water the garden. But we were just told that the garden was in Eden. So if the garden is in Eden, how does the river flow out of Eden to water the garden? While you try and wrap your head around that one, we'll move on because we're going to come back to it and it'll all make sense at the end. Then the text tells us that this river divided and became the source of four rivers divided into four heads and we know the geography because it's been spelled out for us the land of Havilah where all these wonderful mineral deposits are described that land is the southern extremity of Arabia the Pishon or the pouring out is the Persian Gulf which is of course where the Tigris and Euphrates pour out then we have the land of Cush which is the southernmost point of land referred to in the Bible and the Gihon, or Gushing River, is probably the far southern tributary of the Nile, today called the Blue Nile. And the Tigris, of course, is the river that, as stated by the text, runs east of Assyria. Remembering that this text is replete with references to Mesopotamian culture, it should be no surprise that the Tigris River is familiar. But I think that it does serve as a key element in dating this text, that we still have to provide a location in terms of relevant kingdoms. You might have realised that the Euphrates is mentioned without any kind of attempt at clarification or explanation, and the reason for that is obvious when you consider that we're talking about Judahites, about a nation in exile. They don't need to be told where the Euphrates is. They get up every morning and look at it. These are exiles in Babylon. They know the Euphrates. They don't need it explained to them. When you talk about Ethiopia, you're talking about a place with a very distinct-looking people group. If you're in Israel or in Mesopotamia, and you happen to see a person who comes from Ethiopia, you know where they're from because of what they look like. In the Bible, people from Kush are always talked about as being quite distinctive. So 
you don't have to talk about what kind of products come from the land or anything like that. Once you've mentioned the place, a mental image of its people comes to mind. But when you talk about Havilah, you have to tell them what comes from there. When you talk about Assyria, you have to explain which river goes past there. You have to provide points of reference. You have to clarify. But not when it comes to talking about the Euphrates. There's no doubt in the mind of the audience where that is. They're washing their clothes in it. I kind of feel like this is where we should sing By the Rivers of Babylon. Please. Please no more. <laughs> uh, you were looking forward to it the other week. That's that's true. <laughs> okay, so now we have covered a landmass that spreads from as far north as the Black Sea down to the very tip of Arabia and then around the tip, uh, the top of the African continent through Ethiopia. From east to west, that would encompass everything from Iratu to the Nile Delta and from Tyre and Sidon to the border of Persia. As far as the world of Old Testament scripture is concerned, that is practically the entire world that they knew. And this is actually the whole point. Eden is the world. When the biblical writer wants to talk about the whole world, he's going to use the four cardinal directions and specifically places that can be identified with them to paint that picture. You'll find that the prophet Ezekiel does the same thing in the prophecy of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38. So here's the first six verses from Ezekiel 38. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, face Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Prophesy against him and say, this is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out with all your army, including horses and riders, who are all splendidly dressed, a huge assembly armed with large and small shields, all of them brandishing swords. Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shields and helmets. Goma, with all its troops, and Beth to Gama, from the remotest parts of the north, along with all its troops, many peoples are with you. Seems I can't do a study on any part of the primeval history without somehow finding a connection to Ezekiel in it. Funny that. It's a bad obsession. Sorry, another Guns and Roses joke there. Again, this language is suggestive of the four corners of the earth or the four directions of the compass, the furthermost reaches of the world relative to Israel. And it happens again in the primeval history when we read about Nimrod. But not only once. We actually get this four corners of the earth concept used twice about him in Genesis 10. Getting back to our reading, though, as far as you went in any of these directions, you found a natural border created by water, whether it be the Tigris, the Mediterranean, the Persian Gulf, the Blue Nile, or the river that ran by your doorstep every day in Babylon. All around the known world, there was water that flowed. Some rivers seemed to flow into it, and some rivers seemed to flow out of it. But wherever you went, beyond the sand of the seashore, you'd find a watery mass that delineated the edge of the world. And as I said before, when we were talking about cosmology and the way that ancient people thought about the shape of the world, ancient Israelites were no different to everybody else. If you asked them to draw a picture of the world, they would draw a circle. There'd be water around the outside edge. There'd be rivers running through the middle. There'd be land all over that disk, regardless of what shape the land really is. And even if that makeshift map indicated that there were other lands beyond that watery border, you wouldn't find them accurately represented geographically, like on a modern map. The point of these maps isn't to tell you what the shape of the world is. It's to tell you the extent of the land that your God is in charge of. Again, if you want to know more about that one, for those who came in late, we did an extensive coverage of ancient cosmology in our first season. So please go back and listen to that if you missed it. The river that waters the garden, that flows out from it, that flows all around it, that isn't a real river. It's the border, the boundary of the land. And when I say land, I'm talking about the Hebrew use of the term Eretz. We often translate that as Earth. But the problem is that modern people tend to think about planets when you say Earth. And that's not what we're talking about here. This is the world of Scripture. And the whole thing is Eden. That's right. All of it is Eden. And God brings life to it all. You could say he waters it by means of this saturation of his presence that is represented by the waters of a river that comes out from its center and encompasses the world, nourishing it and bringing life abundantly. It's a land that's girt by sea, but no, it's not Australia. For our overseas listeners, in case you weren't aware of this, the word girt has only one use here in Australia, and that's when singing our Australian national anthem. 
Very true. What an odd word it is. Maybe it's short for Gertrude, but no. So, I think I'm just Gert by T-shirt right now. <laughs> if this is all Eden, then surely there must be a specific place where the man actually stood before God, right? It can't be all symbolic. That would just be incredibly disappointing. So you've generalised about the whole earth being Eden, and now are you telling me you were about to find out that there is no garden? There is no specific place where the tree of life actually once grew. Are you trying to tell us that this whole thing was just a literary device the whole time, just written to make a point without any basis in reality? I'm not sure I'm ready to hear that. The truth is, there is no spoon. Um, No, there's no need to be afraid of that. As I always say, without a genuine referent for the story, it wouldn't make sense to its first audience. And no matter how inspired you think your writings might be, no one is going to preserve them for thousands of years if they don't make any sense right now. And we already noted when we were looking at Assyria as a potential candidate for the garden that there are a whole bunch of scripture references that actually do refer to a very real place that was known to biblical people. So you mean the Garden of Eden was in Assyria the whole time? Or was that just a little part of a much larger picture? Yes. Okay, then. Thanks for clarifying. But what I've been driving at this whole time is that you're not going to visit the geographical location known locally as Eden and find the Tree of Life because I think we've come far enough to be able to comfortably say it's not a real tree. You can't find this physical tree and pick a fruit off it and live forever. The Tree of Life is meant to be associated with the presence of God. Why do we have cherubim guarding the way to the Tree of Life? Those are throne guardians. They protect sacred space. So they guard the way to the tree of life because they're protecting the unholy from what would happen to them should they happen to encounter the holy God in person. They're not there to protect you from what might happen if you ate a fruit that was good for you. So we should be able to understand now why we can talk about man being created in the image of God outside the garden without referring to someplace outside of the world. Again, we're not talking about planets here. Geographical Eden represents both the Garden of Eden and the generalization of the world of the ancient Israelite. And as such, the man is in it, but not of it. Does that sound familiar? In the world, but not of the world? You have a place where you live in the world, but this world is not your home. This is why God commands his people to live as sojourners in the land, because the land belongs to him, not to us. It's his garden, not ours. It's his promised land, not ours. Why does God say that you must keep his commandment or the land will vomit you out? It's because the land belongs to him and it is connected to his holiness and his manifest presence. You cannot remain in the land unless you are justified before him. So yes, Eden is a historical place. And yes, Eden is a mythological place. And it is both because the author of scripture is doing what we call mythic history. It's not either or, it's both. You can't separate one from the other, and you shouldn't even try. It can be helpful to try and identify both of those elements. But if you take one away from the other, then the whole thing loses its meaning. And after all, Scripture was written to teach us. It sure was. And that's about all we've got time for, so we'll leave it there for now. Thank you very much. What have we got next time when we come back, Tim? Well, next week I thought we'd do something for Christmas, so prepare to get festive. That's all I'm going to say about that. We'll see you then. But in the meantime, let's give our brains a bit of a nudge. You got any questions for us, Chris? I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us on the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. I certainly do. I've got a question here from uh, David Russell and for some of our listeners who have been keeping up with uh, Tim's other media appearances. You might have heard that name, David Russell, who appeared alongside him as a guest on the Complete Sinner's Guide podcast about a month or so ago. So David has his own program, which is called Proselytize or Apostatize, and I know I was going to mispronounce that, um, but <laughs> on a CSG, where the topic of discussion was Nephilim, the focus of the discussion was largely around the issue of the nature and powers of spiritual beings in Scripture. 
So David holds the position that the sons of God referred to in Genesis 6 could not have been entities capable of physical embodiment without God himself personally enabling that to happen. And during the discussion, when the point was raised that this opinion was contrary to the majority view of Bible interpreters through Old Testament history, as well as the early church period, David made the point that just because a view happens to be held by the majority, that does not necessarily make it right. So with that in mind, here is David's question. Thanks for engaging with me. Here is one for consideration. Just because a view is more prevalent in tradition, does that make it true? For example, the majority view and tradition of messianic thought was a conquering messiah. However, there, there was a minority view of a suffering servant messiah that would come first. And obviously today we know this as the Messiah Ben Joseph idea. What are your thoughts? Take it away, Tim. Okay, so this question is in reference to the majority view concerning the so-called angelic interpretation of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And David's basically saying just because the majority held that view doesn't make them right. And as I said on the program when I initially responded to David, I agree that it is fallacious to base an argument on popularity or to pretend that there was an absolute consensus. It doesn't change the fact that it was the majority view, but that's beside the point. Now, I could point out that the current prevailing view of how to interpret this passage is now the majority view, so we're not going to argue that it must be correct because the majority today hold that view, especially if we're trying to make a point that the majority are not necessarily correct by virtue of being in the majority. So the, the tables have turned on the majority, what view they hold these days. Now, David brought up the Aramaic Targums as an example of a view that differed from the so-called angelic view. But as I pointed out in my book, there was a reason for differing views proceeding from a minority within the early church and within rabbinic Judaism from the 2nd century AD onward. The Targums are quite late, and as such, they reflect later rabbinic Judaism rather than the theology that prevailed in the biblical period. As commentary and expansion on the original biblical text, the Targums present the point of view that the rabbis hoped would prevail and we should note that that was a position against Christianity. Now, since David is an apologist, he will no doubt appreciate the importance of working through the issues around anti-Christian rhetoric, and that is exactly what we have in the case of the Jewish explanation of Genesis 6 that arose in the 2nd century AD. Basically, the argument goes that if the sons of God couldn't have children with human women, then neither could God himself have a son through Mary remove the precedent, and you delegitimize the main event. It's like the T-800 Model 101 going back in time to kill Sarah Connor. Kill the mum, reset the future, the baby can't save humanity. But the view of Genesis 6 that interpreted the sons of God as divine beings was not just a majority view. It was Orthodox Israelite theology. It was Orthodox Jewish theology. It was mainstream Christian theology. In other words, interpretations that fell outside of this reading of the text were considered to be completely alien to the worldview of the people groups that held this understanding as normative. So it seems we have two majority views. The first is the majority view in the biblical period, and the second is the majority view since five centuries after the biblical period. I should also point out that the current majority is shrinking as people become better informed about the original understanding of the text. Let me ask this, which view is closer to the context of biblical authorship? Which view has a tighter grip on realising authorial intent? In other words, do we not think that the first audience of the scriptures had a better idea of how to understand this text than interpreters from other countries who lived centuries later? Because if we're going to argue that later interpreters got this right and the first audience did not, then we have to explain how it is that the first audience was able to make sense of the relevant text within the context of the broader body of scripture and what motivated them to regard them as sacred and true if they didn't make sense at the time. That's the point I was making earlier uh, when we talk about Eden. If, if something doesn't make sense at the time, why are you going to hang on to that document? My point is if you're going to communicate effectively to your target audience, the things that you write to them had better make sense according to their understanding. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. I guarantee you that no author of Scripture wrote their message thinking to themselves, well, it's going to be all right because 2,000 years from now, people will finally understand what I've been trying to say this whole time. I just hope that I can baffle them with my brilliance for long enough that they'll 
preserve these texts until such time as someone comes along with the correct understanding to be able to explain it. So I have a question which reminds me of my old love letters written in high school. Um, why would anyone keep a document that makes no sense to the reader? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, the, the next point we need to talk about is the idea of the scriptures being internally consistent. How did the scriptures survive the scrutiny of hundreds of years of study if the text didn't have a high degree of internal consistency? Let me put it like this. Why was it okay for people to believe that Abram and Sarai could not have children and yet God was able to make Sarai conceive? Why was it okay for Israelites to read the story of Samson and not question the deliberate ambiguity around Samson's parentage? How come when an angel appears to Joseph and tells him that his wife Mary will be with child, he doesn't turn around and say, that's impossible? I'm going to answer those questions for you right now. It's because the union of human and divine was not just a concept that they were familiar with or some kind of literary device that makes for interesting reading. This was entirely expected by the people involved and anticipated by the audience of each author because their understanding of the future restoration of all things that they longed for with all their hearts had at its core the reversal of the unholy union of gods and men. And this was achieved in Jesus Christ, foreshadowed in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. It's rare that I come across anyone who realizes that this verse presents an impossibility, because it says, her seed. This is completely unnatural. Only the man has seed. Okay, in, in uh, biblical understanding... And uh, even today in our modern medicine, that still makes sense. And yet the woman will have seed without a man. This is divine intervention. So the Messiah was expected to come supernaturally through a woman. Isaac came supernaturally through a woman. Jacob and Esau came supernaturally through a woman. Samson came supernaturally through a woman. John the Baptist came supernaturally through a woman. Every time this happens in Scripture, we're getting closer to Messiah. And finally, Jesus came supernaturally through a woman. David's original question came with an example. He said the majority view and tradition of messianic thought was a conquering Messiah. However, there was a minority view of a suffering servant Messiah that would come first, which we know today as the Messiah ben Joseph idea. But that's an example of two legitimate and concurrent traditions that come out of the same body of scripture. The naturalistic concept of the sons of God in Genesis 6 is a view that doesn't have biblical support, isn't culturally coherent, isn't internally consistent with the biblical meta-narrative, and doesn't work together with the prevailing view of the day. So there are four reasons why the example given doesn't serve his argument. I can acknowledge that the Messiah ben Joseph concept was not fully realised by many until after the biblical period, but that doesn't negate the fact that the scriptures were consistent with it before it became a more popular view. That's not the same as a late view arising from an absence of biblical support. There are reasons why the supernatural view of Genesis 6 was the majority view, and they didn't include things like, it just sounds more interesting and fun, or everybody else is doing it. This view is culturally coherent. It is internally consistent with the biblical meta-narrative. It works according to basic principles of communication, i.e. the audience knows what the author means. It supports rather than undermines our Christology, and it provides a fuller picture of the accomplished work of Christ. So that's what makes this view correct, majority or otherwise. Once again, thanks, David, for asking the question. I hope this has provided some food for thought, and I look forward to hearing more questions from you. Yeah, indeed. Thank you, David. And, of course, if you're listening at home and would like to have your own giant questions answered, just head to the website, which is giantanswers.com, and you can submit your question there, and Tim will answer it right here on the show but now it's time for a deeper dive beyond the pages of answers to giant questions What have you got for us this week, Tim? What are we diving into? 
Okay, so there's something else that I want to talk about before we wrap it up, and this didn't come in the express shape of a question as such, but I've seen a little pushback against the view of the image of God as expressed in terms of God fashioning man like an idol. And, of course, that's the picture that we see painted in Genesis 2, as I pointed out in our earlier episode when we talked about Superman and the Man of Dirt. And it was framed along the lines of an objection on the basis that it wasn't really that explicit in Genesis 2 that what was going on. So what basis do we have for using that as the interpretive framework? In other words, how do we know that that's really what's going on in the text and it wasn't really about something else? Is God breathing his spirit into the man to animate him as an embodiment of God insofar as he is able to do the works of God? How do we know that that isn't just some, you know, that isn't just co-opting some pagan practice and bringing that kind of pagan mythology into our reading of the Bible. And I think the best way to answer that question is to show how consistently it's used in Scripture. So let's look at Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 14. All these idolaters will prove to be stupid and ignorant. Every goldsmith will be disgraced by the idol he made, for the image he forges is merely a sham. There is no breath in any of those idols. That verse is actually repeated word for word in Jeremiah 51:17 as well. So Jeremiah tells us that these pagan idolaters have made images of their gods and the images are lifeless because they're just made out of gold. The images can't do anything because they're not alive. It's Psalm 135, verses 15 to 18. The idols of the nations are of silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak eyes but cannot see they have ears but cannot hear indeed there is no breath in their mouths those who make them are just like them as are all who trust in them did you catch that breath in their mouths now we'll have a look at habakkuk chapter 2 verses 18 to 19 what use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it it is only a cast image a teacher of lies the one who crafts its shape trusts in it and makes idols that cannot speak Woe to him who says to wood, wake up, or to mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look, it may be plated with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it at all. In Jeremiah 10, verses 3 to 5, For the customs of the peoples are worthless. Someone cuts down a tree from the forest. It is worked by the hands of a craftsman with a chisel. He decorates it with silver and gold. It is fastened with hammer and nails, so it won't totter. Like scarecrows in a cucumber patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm, and they cannot do any good. So it seems quite clear that the prophets knew exactly what this ritual was, what it was supposed to do, and how it was understood. But you'll note that when they apply this language to pagan practice, it is always in a derogatory sense. The writing, the inability of the idol to have any actual life. You can't handle the life. No life handler, you. Bah! I deride your life handling abilities. That was pretty good. Uh, it should be Excellent. pretty clear that the biblical prophets were opposed to the practice of using carved images or idols and the worship of the gods associated with them. And that should be pretty clear from looking at the first few commandments in Exodus 20. In fact, the first four of the ten words. So Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 7. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow in worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. But then there are other occasions when the authors of Scripture use this very same language to talk about God's own people, and they use it positively. In fact, the fourth commandment is placed where it is in the text because it's directly connected to the first three, that is, in the context of the misuse of idols. The Lord God expects his people to be his representatives, and that means that they must conduct themselves in a worthy manner to bear his name. So if humans are God's image bearers, then it's only right that they should choose to function in that capacity. And where there is dysfunction, they ought to seek a remedy for that situation so that they do not violate the fourth commandment. 
with that in mind, let's have a look at a popular psalm of personal restoration. So this is Psalm 51, and we're going to read the whole thing from the CSB. Mind you, if you are looking at the Greek uh, numbering, then it's going to be Psalm 50. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. All right, so we find in this psalm that David, after his adultery with Bathsheba, recognised that he had become non-functional as God's representative. All right, so how does that work? Well, simple. If, if you sin, then you don't represent God because God is holy. Right? God doesn't sin. There's no evil in him. So you can't represent God if you're doing the wrong thing. And that's not a reflection of David's role as king because kings in Israel did not perform the function of deity. This is purely a reflection of how he sees himself as a human created by God to bear his image, and then as, as an Israelite, to bear his name. It's actually really interesting that David does this, because if the attribution of this psalm is correct, and it was written by David in the 10th to 9th centuries BC, then it actually predates popular usage of the mouth-opening ritual in both Egypt and Babylon by a couple of hundred years. There's no doubt that it was occurring in those places earlier, but we don't have very much evidence of it. Most of our evidence comes from the 7th to 6th century BC, which of course incorporates the exilic period when the primeval history was finalised according to my view. But the mouth-opening ritual is attested as early as the 21st century BC in Mesopotamia. What's even more interesting is that the mouth-opening ritual was used in different ways in different civilizations. The Babylonians used it to animate their idols for ritual worship, but the Egyptians used it to effectively deify and resurrect dead royalty. They performed the ritual so that the deceased pharaoh would live on in the afterlife. This is why we see so many ancient Egyptian artifacts and monuments literally defaced. They've had the noses smashed off the statues. Because if you've got no nose, then you can't breathe. No more afterlife for you. David recognises that he needs to be restored back to a functional capacity, brought back to life, as it were, as God's image bearer and representative. So he applies the language of the mouth-opening ritual to himself as a representative of God. Notice the explicit mention of God's Holy Spirit. And while we're talking about the Holy Spirit, contrary to popular belief, the Holy Spirit was quite well known in the Old Testament times. I mentioned it in connection with Genesis 2 when I talked about the breath of life that God gave the man. But for most people, the most familiar verse concerning the Old Testament use of the Holy Spirit is probably going to be the passage that the Apostle Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2, which comes from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 29. After this, I will pour out my Spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my Spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. But one that might be less familiar for you comes from the prophet Ezekiel, and it is consistent with the message of Joel that we just read 
Ezekiel 39, verse 21. In that day, I will cause a horn to sprout for the house of Israel, and I will enable you to speak out among them. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Now, all of these passages that we've just been reading, they've either used ideas from the mouth-opening ritual or direct terminology borrowed from the ritual itself to convey the concept that idolatry was wrong in Israel because God's people were the ones meant to bear his image, and that is perfectly consistent with what we've seen in Genesis 2. So for anyone who had any doubts about how we were able to arrive at that conclusion when we studied our text in Genesis 2, hopefully that's cleared it up and showed how the biblical writer's awareness of these ritual practices doesn't constitute adoption or condoning of them for idolatrous purposes. What the use of this imagery does achieve for us is that it gives a sense of how the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was understood in the time before Pentecost. So it wasn't some kind of mystery that people didn't understand before Jesus' day. Instead, it was a genuine, personal and intimate connection to the God of Israel that was unique to his people in a world full of vain imitations. Perhaps that's one particular reason why Jesus wouldn't suffer anyone to remain demon-possessed. But that's a conversation for another time. We'll see you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. I've also got my windows open, so you can't hear the crickets, but you know. Okay. I can hear something, but I think it's, I don't know. I can't hear it now. Can you hear crickets? I can, but it's outside of my window. Now? Not now? No, mine's constant. That's not oh, loud. So, no, I, I hear crickets when you talk. So, yes, I can hear the crickets. Okay. When you're not well, talking, I don't hear them. Okay. Well, I mute myself when I'm not talking. So. Right. But, uh, but that noise is going to happen every time you speak. I don't speak for long. <laughs> okay, hang on. I'm suffering in my jocks here, literally for you. Let me close the uh, close the window. Stupid sexy Flanders. <laughs> oh dear.